people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and have not lost Uh, And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Um, Today, my wife is 38 weeks pregnant. It's very exciting, isn't it? So we are the second in a three-part series. And who knows if we're going to get to finish it next week or not. Hopefully we will. I'm booked in, but Marcos will be stepping in if uh, things go excitingly. But even though it's 38 weeks, we have not yet got a name that we agree on. It's tough stuff, isn't it? And names are an important thing, right? Names say a lot about us. Uh, I often am first name, last named all the time. Josh Kane. I remember once uh, at a college I was studying at, they put up a rotor for the worship team, and everyone just had their first names... But everywhere it said Josh, it said Josh Kane, even though there was no other Joshes on the worship team or even in the college at the time. It was just me, but it was still first name, last name. I remember uh, when I started at one church, they were like, do you like to be called Josh or Joshua? And I'd never been asked before, in all honesty. I was asked mostly because there was a guy who was a David who was definitely not a Dave, and he wanted to know if I was as uh, pernickety as him. And I was like, I like Joshua. So I got called Joshua there. And actually, no one else in the world calls me Joshua, apart from that one church where I worked, where they call me Joshua. Names, the names that we carry have real significance, right? Real significance. In the Gospel of John, the first half of the Gospel of John, as we spoke about a little bit last week, Jesus has all these names for himself. I am this. I am this. Jesus is calling on uh, Exodus 3, that when Moses has that encounter with God, he says, who shall I say sent me? Tell me your name, that I may go out with your name. Because to have your name, to know you, to know what you call yourself, God, is a powerful thing. It gives me authority, it gives me weight. And God says, tell them I am that I am sent you. Jesus plays on this constantly. I am, I am, I am. My son Ezra, who's four, has a name for our daughter-to-be. Uh, he's decided to call her Coco after the green train in Chuckington which is uh, as good a reason as any to pick the name Coco. But unfortunately, because my last name is Kane, that would mean she was called Coco Kane, and her name would be a Class A drug, which obviously wouldn't, wouldn't be very good. We thought, well, 
was struggling so much with the name, maybe we should just give her a different last name. Uh, my wife's maiden name was Duffy, which is the Celtic for man of peace. Cain means warrior. So there's a good kind of, maybe this will be the peaceful one and, and that'll work out right. But actually, Jesus starts to talk here about the name of the Father. Starts to talk about our name as disciples. This is the chunk of the prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says some seriously significant things about who we are. About what it means for us to be people who know the name of God. Who carry the name of God. For us who are called Christians. For us who are called followers of Jesus. We looked last week at how the name that Jesus uses for God in this prayer is dynamite, is unique amongst all the world's religions. Jesus comes to God and doesn't call him I am. He calls him Father and he invites us to do the same. And we looked last week at how often we think the engine of prayer is asking and receiving, asking and receiving. But actually that's more like the road we take. And what we see in Jesus' prayer is that the engine of prayer is intimacy and obedience to know him, to know his ways, to know him, to know his ways. So we're going to tease that out a little bit more. How does that engine of intimacy and obedience outwork itself in what it means for us to carry the name of Jesus? That's the question we're going to look at. And we're going to look at this just through digging through this uh, verse by verse. There's some really rich things in this passage that the writer does that we don't fully get across in the English. So I'm going to pick out them a little bit. I don't always like kind of always going back to the Greek, because it feels like sometimes, unless you've done Greek, it's a little bit, oh, what's going on here? But there's some really helpful stuff, so we're going we're gonna to do this today. Does that sound all right? We're there, we're there. Jesus starts, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Strong start. I've manifested your name. Manifest, that isn't everyday language, is it? Uh, Fenero is the word there for manifested. I have revealed I have made visible your name. I've shown people your name. But where in the Gospels does Jesus do that? Where does he say, oh, you should now, you used to call God I am, but now his name is... No, the way that Jesus has made visible God is through revealing his nature, his character. Actually, one of the truths that we find in the Gospels is that Jesus revealed that not that he is God-like, but that God is Christ-like. That actually the most intimate name we can call God is Jesus, is Father, is to draw near to the Trinity in relationship. But this is quite important when we look at the context. The context of this prayer is Jesus praying for his disciples just before he's falsely arrested, falsely accused, abandoned by all of his friends, and nailed to a cross. I want to look back at a passage in Isaiah 52, just to tease out this a little bit. Isaiah 52, verse 4 onwards says this. For thus says the Lord, my people went down at first into Egypt, so sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declare the Lord, and continually all day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. Think of those, that 
dynamite encounter with Moses in Exodus. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Therefore, my people shall know my name. And Jesus says, I have made your name visible, tangible. I have taken your name into your people. And there's a sense here right at the start of the prayer that the intimacy of God is is not only that we are known by God, he knows our name, we are his daughters, we are his sons, but actually that we know the name of God. He has chosen to reveal himself to us through the character and action of Jesus. It's just verse one. Let's carry on. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know. Again, that language there. They are yours. They have obeyed. Intimacy and obedience, what we looked at last week, to know God and to follow him. But then there's a little play in here. It says that uh, the disciples have obeyed the word and accepted the words, but the word for word is different. You might have heard these spoken about before, logos and rhema. And logos throughout the Gospel of John is used to describe the word of God, the word made flesh, Jesus himself, and rhema, his kind of teachings and his commands. And I don't think you should labor that too much or build this theology about obeying one and accepting the other. Actually, there's a sense that what Jesus says and who he is coincide, that actually the word of God is both the person and him revealed in the scriptures, and that there's a oneness between the two. But we obey and we accept. Jesus goes on to say, in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Again, there's a bit of parallel there. They know I came and they believed I was sent. The person and the action of God. And actually what, we, what is revealed about the person and the action of God in Jesus as he manifests the name of God is that the person of God is love, is justice. And the action of God is love, is reconciliation. It's the same. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. As we've been looking at prayer at my church, at Mill Halish Church, um, one of the congregation texted me after a sermon and said that they were really touched to know that I prayed for them. I spoke about my own prayer life. Well, how much more precious is it that Jesus prays for us, that Jesus intercedes for us? And actually, he's praying for his disciples to go back to this Isaiah passage. He's praying for his disciples as they're just about to head into exile, just as they're about to head into the wilderness to be away from the presence of Jesus, to be lost in a place and wondering what the promises of God could possibly mean where they are when they don't have Jesus tangibly in front of them. Just as the people of Israel were being carried away and were looking, weeping by the rivers of Babylon, as the psalmist has it, weeping by the rivers of Babylon, saying, we can't see the temple, we can't see God here. In exile, where is God? But in the midst of this, Jesus brings out the language of chosenness, the language of election. Now, in a reformed church, as we are, as I am in, we might start to hear the language of election and want to get into theological debates. You might have heard about Calvinism and Arminianism, 
and people's ideas about those two things. But actually, I think often when we get into those debates, we miss a little bit of the cut and thrust of the biblical narrative. Because the focus here, and I think in a lot of other passages where Jesus talks about election, where Paul talks about election, is not about human agency or divine power, human choice or God's sovereignty when it comes to the acts of salvation, when it comes to the hope and regeneration and rebirth. Actually, the language of election is a language of love and intimacy. It's not a language of how, it's a language of why. Why? Because God loves us. Because we belong to him. Because we're his covenant people. We we are Jesus's. He re-emphasizes that in the next verse, verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. That's the language of election. God is our God, and we are his people. We are his beloved. We are his precious. He is motivated in what he does because of his, his great love and passion for us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's beautiful enough that Jesus prays for us, but that Jesus loves us, that we belong to him. And actually that Jesus is glorified in us. Jesus gets his glory in us. Wow. I don't think that's the only place he gets his glory. I don't want to build too heavy a theology on that. But glorified, I am glorified in them. We looked a little bit at that word glory last week, but it's this sense that actually our intimacy and obedience, as we've been picking out in this whole passage, shines Jesus makes him present, makes him tangible, radiates him in our world. We remain in the world as Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but we bear his name and we bear his glory as we go out into the world. We're not struggling, waiting one day for the final glory to come. We are shining God's glory wherever we go. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. I'm no longer, but they are. Jesus is making his journey to the cross and his disciples are making their journey into exile. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Next week, we're going to pick up a little bit more on unity and maybe what Jesus is digging about as we, as we come later in this passage. But there's this sense that we are protected through belonging, through being in the name of God through having his name, through having his character and his actions, through having his love expressed in our intimacy of knowing him and in our obedience of following him, in knowing his face and his hands. But there's something quite beautiful in that as well, that it's in loving unity with God and with each other that we fully experience and express the love of God. And yet, in my experience of church, Often in exile, in trouble, in hardship, the first thing to go is unity. The first thing to drop is being with other Christian brothers and sisters. The first thing that goes from the disciples is unity as they scatter. Yet actually, it's in unity, that's when we are really strengthened. That's when we come together in exile and we experience the truest of intimacy and obedience There's something about the corporate nature of Jesus' prayer for the disciples here that I think pulls out the importance of praying with other people. When we look at that language of intimacy and obedience, we might think of that as a kind of 
the engine of prayer is about us knowing God and us following his way. But actually, when Jesus starts to pray for his disciples, he outworks that in unity, in togetherness. And actually, I don't know about you, but the most intimate times I've had with the Lord in worship have been when I've been stood with my brothers and sisters worshipping. The thing that came to mind as I was saying that was a, a time when I was worshipping and uh, a friend of mine who God had gloriously saved from a, from a background of violence and addiction just came up to me. A uh, real rough and tumble guy from, from Leeds. Half of his face was metal plates from where he'd been in a bar fight and had his face battered to pieces and he just wrapped a big arm around me and we stood like we were celebrating a goal at a, at a football game, which I've been doing a lot because Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the man. Just like to highlight that after we mentioned him last week. Um, <clears throat> and we just worshipped God together and it was so intimate. The places where I've heard God's voice and been challenged the most to follow him have been when I've been in relationship with other believers, when we've been talking about things, when I'm having conversations with Marcos, when I should be setting up and sound checking. Actually, they're the times when I have known God's face and what he's doing more than I have maybe even on my own. It's no wonder when these are in Jesus' words. While I was with them, Jesus says in verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Wow. Wow. Even Judas, who he lost, was part of Jesus' plan and purpose. But once he takes a hold of us, there's no shaking free. And actually what we learn in that is the intimacy and obedience of Jesus to the Father brings with it power and authority. Power and authority to take a hold of what he wants to take a hold of and never let it go. And that's obvious, right? Because every time we see the name of the Lord in the Bible, it carries power and authority. But now I am coming to you, Jesus says to the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I love this. I want to set on this a little bit because I think there's a truth here that Jesus says, as we as disciples go into exile, as his 11 disciples there are scattered, fearful, afraid, abandoned, Jesus says, you have inner joy even as you face outer opposition. You have inner joy even as you face outer opposition. And actually, I think that's the opposite of our world. Right now, I look at our culture and I see outer joy and inner opposition. I see a world where there is an unlimited array of pleasure where we can just pull out our phone and start watching the most incredible TV series ever brought about, where I can walk down the street and just find the most amazing food, where pleasure is all around me. And yet, every time I turn on the news, mental health is on the rise. Discord is on the rise. Division is on the rise. Actually, I heard a writer say recently, one of the reasons for that is because we've confused pleasure and happiness. Scientifically, they're different chemicals in the brain, but we know that they're different experiences entirely. And I think there's something in that, that actually our joyful intimacy and our obedient sacrifice lead us to a place where inwardly we are full of hope and joy, no matter what the outer cost is, no matter what circumstance we face on the outside. That's what it means for the glory of Jesus to reside in us as we go out in the world. 
as we go back to work this afternoon and discuss the utter carnage of Westminster and Brexit, we carry with us an inner joy, an inner joy that actually is rooted in Jesus and who he is. That actually our future is always certain because no matter how messy it's going to get between now and the 29th of March and probably a lot beyond that, in Jesus our best days are always ahead of us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And of course, this is obvious, because if we carry this deep inner joy, despite the external circumstances, how is the world going to discover that unless we are in the world, unless we are manifesting that joy, unless we are showing that to other people? How will Jesus bring his hope to people who are experiencing external pleasure and internal chaos unless we show them the opposite? Unless we manifest joy. But there's also something here about the evil one, which I think is interesting. I think as a church, maybe we've slipped into the world's language of, of people trying to find themselves, of pe- people trying to discover spirituality. But Jesus says, it's not that people are just trying to find hope. Actually, there is a destructive force in the world to be rescued from, to be protected from. That actually it's, it's an active thing, not just a passive thing where Jesus is discovered, but he is rescuing and saving. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says. Sanctify means to, to consecrate, to set apart, to be set apart for a holy task. Just as this lectern is something that's been built for preaching, has been built for worship in this church and sits here and every... Every few days, someone comes and places a Bible on this and shares from God's word. You, you have been consecrated, have been set apart, have been sanctified. Sanctified, set apart for God's plans and God's purposes to glorify Jesus. And what is the truth? Your word. Your word is truth. Again, the person and the commands of Jesus. Set apart both for Jesus himself and for his mission, for what he is doing. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them out into the world. Again, not just to the cross. Jesus doesn't send his disciples out to the cross, but he sends them out to do what what he did through the cross, which is to reveal the character of God, to bring salvation, to bring hope, love revealed in obedience and intimacy. And for their sake, Jesus says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He takes the cross both to save and to set apart, to make us holy and to consecrate us, to sanctify us, to set us apart for a holy use. So we see here, just as verses 1 to 5 were about intimacy and obedience, this then is applied to the disciples, I think, in identity and purpose. That Jesus says who we are and what we do. Our identity is that we are name carriers of God. And our purpose is that we are set apart to be sent, to represent Jesus, to be his joy in our world. Amen? What a powerful message, eh? He knows what he's talking about, Jesus, doesn't he? So much depth and richness in there. And uh, baby willing, we'll be here the final week to conclude this and end John 17 and see where Jesus takes us next. But why don't we stand? We're going to worship God together and we're going to declare 
who we are. This might be a song that not all of you know. You might have to leave in a couple of minutes because as ever I've run over time, but you're all very gracious with me and never mention it. Um, <clears throat> but this song is just all about who we are. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Our identity and our purpose is shaped by Jesus himself. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for revealing the Father to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, for coming and making your home in our hearts. May we know you more.